Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Now as any longtime listener of this program can tell you, one of the most enjoyable aspects of this show is its diversity. The stories range from monsters, mysteries, and even the spectral and supernatural. The submitters themselves are also a diverse group of people. Folks of all ages, creeds, backgrounds, and locations. But beyond all those episodes, one stands out to me as possibly the best slice of paranormal pie we could carve out. So tonight, we close the bottle on Season 9 with our latest installment of Hometown Legends. Now I have a carefully curated and tediously timed special episode oozing with great entries from all around the globe. But a little warning before we crack the seal on tonight's programming. Many of these hometown legends stem from violent beginnings. So if you have kids listening, or you are sensitive to descriptions of violence, you just might want to skip this one. And so, to kick off the season finale with what is quickly becoming a hometown legend staple, please join me in welcoming Alan from Texas back to the program. Take it away, sir. Hello Derek, this is Ellen from Texas, and this is for Hometown Legends. I'd also like to say hello to Addie, because she kind of prompted me to send something in this time. This is a gruesome old ghost legend, I guess you could say, from South Texas that happened sometime in the mid-1800s. And it concerns a couple of people who are kind of famous in Texas history. Creed Taylor was a rancher. He uh, served as a Texas Ranger for a, a short time, but he was mostly a rancher who uh, had also fought in many of the battles during the war between Texas and Mexico. He seemed to gravitate to battles. Uh, I don't know if that meant he liked fighting or he liked being able to kill people. That's speculation, but he seemed to turn up in just about every every important battle there was. Of course, this could be uh, part of the tradition of Texas Tall Tales. Maybe he wasn't actually there and just said he was. But he was known to be a man who was dangerous to have as an enemy. He knew a man, a friend of his, named William Wallace. William Wallace was a Texas Ranger. He's famous for that now. He was a Texas Ranger for many years. 
and he's better known by his nickname, which I think you'll like. He was a big guy, bigger than average for uh, men of that time period. He was supposed to have stood about six foot two and weighed around 240 pounds, and people said that wherever he walked, he left a big footprint. So he came to be known as Bigfoot Wallace because he was such a big guy. One day, some horse thieves stole several horses that belonged to Creed Taylor. So he took one of his ranch hands with him, and they set out on their trail. And as they were going along, they ran into Bigfoot Wallace, and uh, Wallace was a friend of Taylor's, and he was also a lawman being a Texas Ranger. Taylor told him what was going on, so he joined in with them to to uh, track down the thieves. They were both well-known as excellent trackers, but they were trailing a herd of horses plus three thieves who were also riding horses, and it doesn't take an expert tracker to follow a trail of uh, several horses, you know, possibly as many of a do- as a dozen horses or something like that. So they were able to go along fairly quickly, and they caught up with the thieves during the night of that same day. It's not clear if they identified themselves and tried to arrest the thieves or if they just ambushed them since the uh, punishment for stealing a horse was hanging and uh, these three men would have been hung anyway they probably just ambushed them right there the thieves had left one man on guard while the other two slept but their one guard was not very vigilant so they were taken by surprise and there was a gunfight, but um, they had been taken by surprise, and the uh, Taylor and Wallace and the other man were out in the darkness around the camp, so uh, it wasn't much of a fight, and all three thieves were killed. Neither Taylor nor Wallace nor uh, the man who worked for Taylor were injured. So uh, I think I've already established that Taylor was kind of a mean guy, a dangerous man to have as an enemy. And he came up with this idea to provide an example and to show potential thieves what could happen to them if if they stole his horses. So he took the leader of this gang of thieves who he identified as Vidal. That's the only name we have for him. His, His last name was Vidal. And he cut Vidal's head off. And then the three men took Vidal's body and used ropes to, uh, tie it into the saddle of his horse so that his body remained upright in the saddle. And then they took his decapitated head and tied it to the pommel of the saddle. So it was just hanging there, kind of bouncing off the saddle. And then they let the horse go. And it wasn't long after this that another man who lived in the area who was camping out one night, he may have been out hunting or uh, out trying to catch wild mustangs because that was a thing that was done back then. Uh, People would catch these wild horses and uh, train them to be cattle horses so that they they could either use them on their own ranches or possibly sell them to other ranchers to be used as cattle horses. So anyway, this man was out uh, camping and it was after dark. He was at his campfire when suddenly this skeletal gaunt horse walked up to the fire with a man's headless body sitting in the saddle. 
and he was very frightened. He shot the man, but the uh, the man didn't move. But the horse spooked and ran away. And reports like this kept coming in from all over South Texas. People would say they had seen the horse with its headless rider, the head bouncing on the saddle horn, off in the distance, if it wasn't too dark. Sometimes the horse would just walk right up to their campfire. Sometimes they said they would shoot at the man, but nothing ever happened except that the horse would run away. And eventually, some men found the horse with its headless rider, drinking water at a watering hole in South Texas near a small town called Ben Bolt. And they caught it, and even after all this time, Vidal's body was still sitting upright in the saddle, his head tied to the saddle horn. So they cut off all the ropes and took him down, him and his head, and they finally gave him a decent burial somewhere there near Ben Bolt. But even after this happened, people kept seeing Vidal on his horse. People who would be camping outside at night. A horse would just walk up to the fire, a horse that was silent and gaunt, almost skeletal, with a headless man on his back, the man's head tied to the horse's saddle horn. Reports came in from all over South Texas, from all the way down in the border area, up to as far north as Waco, wherever there were cowboys still working cattle, wherever there were ranchers, they would see him. He came to be known as El Muerto del Rodeo, which kind of translates as the dead rider or the dead cowboy. Some people said, no, he couldn't have been seen because he had been found and, and buried. And there would be arguments between old men sitting outside the bar or the general store playing checkers. And one would say that he had been seen. Another would say, no, he couldn't have been seen. He was caught. Vidal was buried. And someone else would say, well, you're both right. He had been caught and he had been buried. But still, he had been seen. That was a long time ago. More than 150 years now. It's been a long time since anybody's reported seeing Vidal headless riding on the gaunt horse. So maybe with the passage of all this time, Vidal's just faded away. Or maybe he's finally found peace. Or maybe... Nowadays, people are just less likely to admit that they've seen something that they think can't be real. People who are camping out in the country at night when a horse walks quietly up to their campfire, a horse with a headless body on his back, the head tied to the saddle horn, and then just as suddenly and silently disappears. Thank you, Alan. It wouldn't be a Hometown Legends episode without an entry from our Texas correspondent. And he knocked it out of the park, as usual. Now, I know I've mentioned it on at least a couple episodes now, but this story sounds eerily similar to the Red Ghost Legends out of the Arizona deserts. If you recall, the military put camels into use in the desert southwest back in the 1850s and 60s. 
But the approaching civil war cut the project short. And that's where things get a little weird. Well, hell, I'll let Arizona's official historian, Marshall Trimble, tell you exactly how it all went down. The story that, that of, of the Red Ghost comes from in about 1880 in the Clifton area there. There were some miners out. Uh, they had gone off and left their wives behind, uh, and they had gone off on some uh, Indian hunting expedition. And um, one of the women went down to the stream to get some water, and the other women heard her screaming. They couldn't go down. They thought it was Indians, and so they, they couldn't do it anything till the men came back that evening. And then they went down and checked, and the woman was, was dead. Uh, something had killed her. Uh, they found a, a red hair in the brush, some red hair. They didn't really know what it was. But then a few months later, they, um, the camel attacked a um, mining camp. And it attacked a camp and just went in and trashed the whole camp. And somebody, as they saw it run off, it happened at night, saw it, saw it run off, they, they swore there was a skeleton tied to its back. That somebody had tied a skeleton on there, or a body on there, and it drove the camel insane, this is, is the story. But in time, the skeleton fell off of the camel, they say, and, and um, it, was, uh, it, it was around 1900, I think, that a cowboy looked out one morning, and there was a camel grazing in his garden. So he took his rifle and shot it. When they examined it, they saw rawhide marks of, 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 of scars on the camel's back. Uh, where it, you know, where the camel had been, so, but nobody knew uh, who that skeleton was. Was it an Indian? Was it a white man? Was it a prank? But the stories grew, uh, and there were several versions of the story as to. Now that clip comes courtesy of Mysteries of the Superstition Mountains. Now, obviously, I'm a big fan of the Red Ghost. I've certainly talked enough about it. But what if I told you there was another dead rider that Alan's tale brings to mind? I happen to find the perfect soundbite from a YouTube channel called Video Jug to tell you all about a possible relative of mine. Frank Hayes is a celebrity that is only in the record books of horse racing. He holds the distinction as being the only jockey in the history of horse racing to actually win a horse race dead. He was a 35-year-old stable guy who begged the owner of this horse, Sweet Kiss, who was a loser, if he could finally get put on the riding silks and race it. And sure enough, he was so excited that the horse was winning that 10 yards before the finish line, Frank Hayes gets a heart attack and dies, but manages to stay on to the horse, and the horse wins. After that, no one would wanted to ride this horse Sweet Kiss, even though he was a winner. And that's where the term Sweet Kiss of Death ended our lexicon of dying. Now, I have no idea if I'm actually related to this fellow or not, but given his luck, I'd say I'm a direct descendant. Thank you again, Alan, for the always informative entry. And rest in peace, Frank. From the hot, arid terrain of Texas, we venture a couple days' ride northward through the lush watershed region of the mighty Mississippi and into the iconic Ohio River Valley. From there, we make our way east, where Gabrielle, from Pennsylvania, has this evening's next entry. Hi, 
Hi, Derek. This is Gabrielle. I'm from Pennsylvania, and this is for your hometown legends. So this originally started as I had a story from my childhood that I went to talk to my dad about because I was curious whether or not this was something made up when I was a kid or not. And my dad completely discouraged it, but he ended up actually bringing to light a story that I had never heard. Um, and this is actually in a newspaper from the 1960s. So in the area that I live, I live close to Fort Indian Town Gap, which also has the Stony Valley. My dad constantly goes fishing there, and it's a well-known place for, like, the military to practice. The Stony Valley was also known for having a ton of ruins because they had tried multiple times to turn this into mining towns and every single time has kind of failed. There's the remains of a ghost town basically there alongside a disused railroad track. It's completely not in use anymore. So people walk across the tracks and you can walk up and down the railroad to get to better fishing spots. I have the newspaper print, so I will view the actual article, but it is called Ghost Story, and it's by um, Kurt Southerly. But the story goes that, and it actually names a person in this too, Mason English lost his life in the Stony Valley. I don't remember if it says where exactly he did, but the story goes that he and two of his companions were going out to hunt groundhogs. And he somehow became separated from his two compatriots. And either due to the fact that it was so early in the morning or maybe they had been trekking all day, he decided to take a nap. Somehow, against his better judgment, he decided to take a nap against the railroad track, which he then covered himself with leaves and tree branches in order to try and keep animals away from him and flies. But at the time that he did so, the tracks were still in use by a Reading train that came once a day. And it happened to be on that fateful day that the train was scheduled to come as he was taking this nap. According to reports from the people who were driving the train, all they literally saw was the branches against the track, thought that a storm had just passed through the area, didn't think anything of it until it started to move and the guy tried to run away and he wasn't fast enough. He ended up getting his head completely decapitated, and the account of what happened to him is really gruesome, but the whole concept goes that after this accident, there's this whole story of he still, to this day, is supposed to travel up and down the railroad tracks looking for his missing head, and he carries a ghost light as he does so. It's kind of an interesting story because it does give full names and it does give like full times and even a date as to when this guy was supposed to have died. But it's funny because apparently it correlates to when the writer and he actually interviewed somebody for this story and the person he interviewed said that the story didn't even really pop up until this guy started like trekking up and down the area that the ghost started to pop up. So there's a little bit of a wonder whether or not this is true or not, because it's a little bit of an odd story, especially out of the fact that how somebody doesn't notice a railroad track that's still in use and decides to take a nap there. I'm not sure how that works. But if you're ever in the area, it is a really cool place to visit. Granted, it is 
technically on military property, but people are still allowed to fish, still travel through there. There's And there's still the ruins of all of these towns left behind. So it is really creepy. But that's all I got. Thank you, Gabrielle. If you're playing hometown legend bingo, Gabrielle just lit your card up. A death on a railroad track? Check. Decapitation? Check. Legends of ghosts returning for their heads? Check. And of course, these elements often find themselves in the backstory for many of these urban legends across the country. And of course, Gabrielle's is no different. And that begs the question, do these details persist because they're easy pickings? Are they difficult to fact check? They're super creepy, very vague, yet somewhat familiar, and almost always seem to be cautionary. Or do these tropes persist because those sorts of events occurred with more frequency than they do today? I know trains are very dangerous, so maybe decapitations weren't as unlikely back in the good old days. Oh yeah, Gabrielle sent a few newspaper articles over that you can find them in tonight's show notes at monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash show notes. Headless ghost or not, I would love to visit the area, Gabrielle. And to be honest, at this point, I'd be willing to visit just about anywhere to get out of the house. So thank you again for the entry. And speaking of entries, the show is taking a little break. But when we come back, we have an amazing special episode scheduled. But there's still a few slots available. So if you are a museum, monument, area of interest or otherwise historical employee with an interesting experience, you know what to do. Call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And I should point out that I'm always looking for other true paranormal encounters. So if you have a story, now's a great time to share. So then... From the Stony Gap, we thumb our way to Philly, and from there we board a plane to sunny California, where John from Stockton is our next hometown legend. Hey Derek, this is Jonathan from Stockton, California, a ubiquitous longtime listener, first-time caller. I'm calling in with a hometown legend, hopefully you get to use it sometime. So the area I live in has its share of paranormal activity, uh, hitchhiking, Native American ghosts, haunted houses, haunted hospitals. I also live about an hour from Preston Castle, which is a relatively famous paranormal hotspot in Ione, California. Uh, but I'm calling tonight about a UFO sighting and possible attempted abduction that not only predates Roswell by half a century, but even predates the UFO crash in Aurora, Texas. This event was part of a wave of airship sightings here in NorCal that took place during 1896 and 1897. There was a story written in our local paper, so I'm just going to read it here for your listeners. Um, So the headline is, Three Strange Visitors Who Possibly Came from the Planet Mars, Seen on a Country Road by Colonel H.G. Shaw and a Companion. They Boarded the Airship. For more than a week, the papers all over the coast have been reporting the presence of an alleged airship or flying machine, which many reputable people claim to have seen on several occasions in the heavens at night. 
Whether or not there really is such a contrivance navigating the air, the male is unable to satisfactorily determine, but some of the papers have taken the matter seriously, and others have been disposed to make light of the statements. A couple of San Francisco attorneys have secured a lot of free advertising by claiming to have clients who have invented and tested successful flying ships, and the newspapers have filled several columns talking about the aerial mystery. The mail makes the above statement merely by way of preface to a most remarkable story, which is related by Colonel H.G. Shaw of this city, formerly of the mail editorial staff. Colonel Shaw is at present engaged in collecting an exhibit for the Stockton Commercial Association to be displayed at the Citrus Fair, which will be held in Fresno during the coming month. The gentleman was very reticent about relating the circumstance, as he said he had no idea that it would be believed by anyone, and he was loath to appear before the public as a romancer, or as a man who had looked upon shoestring when it was read. He tells the story as follows. So, subheadline: Three Strange Beings. Quote, Were it not for the fact that I was not alone when I witnessed the strange sight, I would never have mentioned it at all. Wednesday afternoon, I went out to Lodi and Lockford in company with Camille Spooner, a young man recently arrived from Nevada. I went to the places mentioned in quest of material to form an exhibit to represent this county at the Fresno Citrus Fair. We left Lodi on the return trip, I should judge, shortly before six o'clock, and we were jogging along quietly when the horse stopped suddenly and gave a snort of terror. Looking up, we beheld three strange beings. They resembled humans in many respects, but still they were not like anything I had ever seen. They were nearly or quite seven feet high and very slender. We were both somewhat startled, as you may readily imagine, and the first impulse was to drive on. The horse, however, refused to budge, and when we saw that we were being regarded more than an air of curiosity than anything else, we concluded to get out and investigate. I walked up to where the strange-looking persons were and addressed them. I asked where they were from. They seemed not to understand me, but began, well, warbling expresses it better than talking. Their remarks, if such you would call them, were addressed to each other and sounded like a monotonous chant inclined to be guttural. I saw it was no use to attempt a conversation, so I satisfied myself with watching and examining them. They seemed to take great interest in ourselves, the horse and buggy, and scrutinized everything very carefully. While they were thus engaged, I was enabled to inspect them as well. As I have already stated, they were seven feet in height and very slender. I noticed further that their hands were quite small and delicate, and that their fingers were without nails. Their feet, however, were nearly twice as long as those of an ordinary man, though they were narrow, and the toes were also long and slender. I noticed, too, that they were able to use their feet and toes much the same as a monkey. In fact, they appeared to have much better use of their feet than their hands. I presently discovered that this was probably a provision of nature. As one of them came close to me, I reached out to touch him, and placing my hand under his elbow, pressed gently upward. And lo and behold, I lifted him from the ground with scarcely an effort. I should judge that the specific gravity of the creature was less than an ounce. It was then that I observed him try to grasp the earth with his toes to prevent my lifting him. You can readily understand that their slight weight made such a provision necessary. They were without any sort of clothing, but were covered with a natural growth hard to describe. It was not hair, neither was it like feathers, but it was as soft as silk to the touch, and their skin was like velvet. Their faces and heads were without hair, the ears were very small, and the nose had the appearance of polished ivory, while the eyes were large and lustrous. The mouth, however, was small, and it seemed to me that they were without teeth. That and other things led me to believe that they neither ate nor drank, and that life was sustained by some sort of gas. 
Each of them had swung under the left arm a bag to which was attached a nozzle, and every little while one or the other would place the nozzle on his mouth, at which time I heard a sound of escaping gas. It was much the same sound as is produced by a person blowing up a football. From the description I give, I do not want you to get the idea that these creatures were hideous. In appearance, they were markedly the contrary. They were possessed of a strange and indescribable beauty. I can express myself in no other way. They were graceful to a degree, and more divinely beautiful than anything I ever beheld. The strangest part of the story is yet to come. It is the lights they carried. Each held to his hand something about the size of a hen's egg. Upon holding them up and partly opening the hand, these substances emitted the most remarkable, intense, and penetrating light one can imagine. Notwithstanding its intensity, it had no unpleasant effect upon our eyes, and we found we could gaze directly at it. It seemed to me to be some sort of luminous mineral, though they had complete control of it. Finally, they became tired of examining us and our horse and buggy, and then one of them, at a signal from one who appeared to be the leader, attempted to lift me, probably with the intention of carrying me away. Although I made not the slightest resistance, he could not move me, and finally the three of them tried it without the slightest success. They appeared to have no muscular power outside of being able to move their own limbs. Well, after trying in vain to move either of us, they turned in the direction of the Woodbridge Canal, near which we were, and as they flashed their lights towards the bridge, we beheld a startling sight. There, resting in the air about 20 feet above the water, was an immense airship. It was 150 feet in length at least, though probably not over 20 feet in diameter at the widest part. It was pointed at both ends, and outside of a large rudder, there was no visible machinery. The three walked rapidly towards the ship, not as you or I walk, but with a swaying motion, their feet only touching the ground at intervals of about 15 feet. We followed them as rapidly as possible and reached the bridge as they were about to embark. With a little spring, they rose to the machine, opened the door on the side, and disappeared within. I do not know of what the affair was built, but just before it started, I struck it with a rock and it gave no sound. It went through the air very rapidly and expanded and contracted with a muscular motion and was soon out of sight. I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we beheld were inhabitants of Mars who have now been sent to the Earth for the purpose of securing one of its inhabitants. I feel safe in asserting that the stories being told by certain San Francisco attorneys are clumsy fakes and should not be given credence by anyone. <laughs> Some practical jokers sent up a number of hot air balloons last night as a takeoff on the alleged airship. Several people saw the balloons and enjoyed a laugh. End of story. So it's a wild story, to be sure, but I thought it'd be perfect for the podcast. Anyways, not to sound like a broken record, but I really enjoy your podcast. It keeps me company during those long spells of insomnia. You know, I really appreciate the way you approach the material with a skeptical eye and try to find a really reasonable explanation. Gives you credibility over some others that may not be as discerning. So anyway, love and good vibes to you and yours, brother. Stay safe out there, and keep an eye on the skies. Bye now. Thanks, John. That's quite the experience. It's almost comical and a far cry from the nightmarish abduction stories of folks like The Hills, Travis Walton, and Whitley Strieber. I am familiar with the airship flap John spoke of between 1896 and 1897. Dozens of reports were sent into newspapers across the country. 
all describing strange floating or flying airships. But what makes cases like the Aurora, Texas incident and this strange story from John's hometown a bit different is the interaction with the strange entities that appeared not to be human. And for those of you that are mumbling to themselves, what happened in Aurora? Back in April of 1897, something crashed into a windmill near that town. Locals discovered a downed craft and what they claimed was a dead spaceman inside. They gave the creature a Christian burial, and so stands the legend. But an important thing to remember about old newspaper articles like these is that many of these stories were embellished or sometimes downright fabricated simply to sell newspapers. So what was their satire may have become our legends. So thank you again, John, for the fun entry. Now under normal circumstances, we catch a plane to our next destination. But given our current situation, a nice slow road trip will get the job done. So Illinois or bust, here is Mateo's hometown legend. Hey Derek, this is Mateo from Illinois calling for your hometown legend submissions. This story isn't really from uh, Illinois, but it is from my dad's hometown in, in Mexico. It's more like on the way, about like 30 minutes away, but you know, towns are kind of far away in, in Mexico, so it's like, you know, it's pretty much right next to it. So on the way, there's this town called Tepuzhuacan, Nayarit, and it's, you know, a, another little like dirt town in Mexico. And, you know, there's a lot of dirt roads and uh, th there's this story that, you know, goes around around there, and it's of this student who was traveling to a town named Tepic, Nayarit. And he basically saw this old woman walking and offered her a ride. She was on the way to Tepic as well. So he offered her a ride, and, you know, she got in. On the way, they got into this horrible accident. I don't remember if it was, like, they got hit by a semi or they fell off of, like, a, of like a cliff, and then, you know, they both ended up dying. Both of those are fairly likely, you know, I've seen a fair share of like blown up cars that have fallen off cliffs and stuff like that. So it's, you know, kind of common over there. So I don't really remember the exact way, but, you know, basically this old woman's student died. And uh, ever since then, people have always reported seeing this same old woman, you know, with a scarf wrapped around her head. But, you you know, they, you can never see her face. It's always on the same dirt road on this like on the slope you know kind of funny enough it, it's like a graveyard where it ends right up right about that that bottom part right before the graveyard that's when she always pops up she pops up and then she asks for a ride or you know you offer her a ride and basically like she'll disappear before you get the chance to take her or she'll actually hop in the truck but she'll get in the back not in, not in the front the front seat or the passenger seat she'll come in the back and just sit there and then she'll disappear on the way when you start driving this actually happened to like one of my grandpa's like friends like if this actually happened to him like she just disappeared and you know he had no trace of where she went you know it's like you know it's an old lady she's not gonna go that far to this day i'm not sure if this is like an actual uh, story like i you know i heard it when it was probably like 14 so this is probably like eight years ago maybe I'm not sure if this is, like, you know, 100% true or this is, like, a Resurrection Mary, you know, I'm from Illinois, so I've heard Resurrection Mary, so this might be their version of the Resurrection Mary, or this could have actually happened, and, you know, there is a lady and a student that actually died and, you know, ended up, like, you know, losing their life, but, you know, a funny story uh, that has, that ties into this is that uh, on the way to my dad's hometown, 
my grandpa was telling us a story about how this lady asked for rides and then you know it, it you're not supposed to pick her up like on the way we kind of freaked out because we're on the same road as as he's telling it and we pull up to about the same part where she shows up and we see this lady and you know she has a head she has a head wrapped around a scarf just like the same lady but it's like the middle of the day and you know it turns out that they're like a familiar person that we know before she tilted her head up, we didn't know who it was. So we were, we were, you know, kind of scared, but we finally realized that it was somebody we knew and we started laughing because we thought it was someone else. We thought it was like the scary apparition. Well, that's the main story. And then the little circumstance that we had over there. But yeah, I mean, I love the show, man. Uh, I love the podcast. I really found out about it, you know, fairly recently, but I love to listen at work because it makes a day go by way faster. Love the show, man. Keep it up. Thank you, Mateo. You threw us for a loop. I forgot we were going to Mexico in this call. I do agree with you, though. This story does sound similar to stories of Resurrection Mary and other quote-unquote lady-in-white legends. Yet another old chestnut in the urban legend vocabulary. And I also have to say that I'm enjoying some of these entries from Mexico and other Central American countries. Paranormal Caught on Camera, of all places, has really been introducing me to some of these hidden gems. So thank you again, Mateo, for adding your father's story to the growing list of incredible tales from that region. Now before we venture down the road, I have to do what I have to do to get paid. And since this is a relatively ad-free show, that means I'm selling merchandise. And boy, have I been busy adding new items. We have a brand new hat from the talented Jamie Murray, a sweet Goonies-inspired travel gym bag from Eerie Eric, and if that's a film you grew up with, be sure to check that one out. No doubt it'll bring back a few memories. And that's not all, we also have koozies, vinyl stickers for your car, and probably the signature piece of the summer. A month or so back, I partnered with the talented artist and friend of the podcast, Eerie Eric to design a retro camp-inspired shirt for the summer. Man, he did not let us down. Search us out on social media or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop to see these bad boys. Oh, and I almost forgot, just as we did with Brett Manning and her amazing design, the first run of Eerie Eric's shirts will also feature a tiny autograph by Eric and yours truly. So get yours before they're gone. The design will be reprinted, but the autograph and color scheme will not. A big thanks to Jamie and Eric for those amazing designs. Now, since Mateo has us out of the country, I suppose this would be an ideal time to journey to the bottom of the world. To a country that's high on my list of places I'd love to visit. So all of that is my way of welcoming Al from New Zealand to the program. Hello, Derek. My name is Al, and I'm sending you this from New Zealand, hopefully for consideration in your upcoming hometown legends. Forty years ago, few people would even have been able to point to my little country on a world map. But I really want to share a pretty well-documented event which put New Zealand and my little hometown in world headlines on New Year's Day, 1979. 
I'm talking about the Kaikoura UFOs. Now this was uh, multiple encounters with aerial objects which were not only filmed from a plane but simultaneously confirmed by numerous government radar contacts. But talking about it always causes me a little bit of frustration to be honest because you see one of the world's best documented UFO sightings happened more or less directly above my head and I was asleep. I was 12 years old and I was utterly oblivious to the fact that the skies were at that moment full of a phenomenon which I usually sent everyone else to sleep with by talking about all the time. It was late December 1978 and I loved all things sci-fi and the unexplained. I still do in fact, including your wonderful podcast. Anyway, Star Wars, and more significantly, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had finally screened in New Zealand earlier that year. And to say that space travel and extraterrestrial beings were in the zeitgeist, well, that would have been a massive understatement. This particular event first began just before midnight on December the 21st, 1978, when a warrant officer at my town's uh, Royal Air Force Base spotted unusual lights in the southern sky. He communicated with aircraft controllers in our capital city, Wellington, and they were also able to confirm the objects with radar returns. This was a pretty amazing in itself, but through the course of that early morning, um, the objects were also tracked um, by nearby aircraft, aircraft traveling on nearby flight paths. But not only that, Wellington Radar confirmed that the objects were actually following the planes at amazing speeds. The warrant officer and the aircraft crews also described the objects as projecting powerful beams which lit up the sea in the vicinity of a nearby coastal town called Kaikoura, hence the name of this uh, event. When this got out, it caused enough of a stir for an Australian news channel to charter the plane nine days later. They organised for a television reporter called Quentin Fogarty to make the report, and he took a cameraman and a sound person on board with him, and they flew on the same early morning flight path. So they took to the air just before midnight, and incredibly the phenomenon reoccurred almost as soon as they were in the air. So for the following three hours of flying, that is the flight down to uh, a city called Christchurch and back again, they were surrounded by clusters, not just one or two, but clusters of hovering darting lights, which were all confirmed by multiple radar readings. But this time it was filmed. Personally, I do remember the now famous footage shot by Quentin Fogarty's camera crew. And uh, it was interesting because Fogarty reported that he felt as if their Argosy freighter, that is the, the aircraft that they were in, was being played with by the mysterious objects, as if they were a lumbering fishing boat surrounded by a mischievous pod of darting, leaping dolphins. But the footage itself well, sadly does little to convey this. Apparently, the cameraman was jammed into a cramped aircraft interior. 
there was a lot of uh, bumping around, as there always is in aircraft, and he was forced to try and film and focus through a tiny little window. So really, the fact that he got anything at all was, was quite amazing. The footage that was captured shows a fuzzy, squashed orange, which bumped around TV screens all over the country and eventually the world, accompanied by Fogarty's excited narration. It is still remarkable, however, especially when Fogarty describes one of the objects as having a transparent upper section and an opaque lower hemisphere. And what's amazing, even more amazing still, is that this object later performs a maneuver which leaves a shape like a glowing orange ampersand. And this is on a single frame of film. In the days that followed, obviously, there was an enormous amount of international attention and publicity. A jet fighter was even kept on high alert at the Air Force Base, ready to scramble at first hint of another unearthly incursion. And sadly, perhaps, this never happened. The summer went on, tension died down, and um, this astonishing incident all but faded into folklore. It seems strange to me. Um, I mean, this was the only case of an unidentified flying object ever verified by multiple radar sources and visual sightings simultaneously. And this was by reliable people, flight crews, air traffic controllers. And on top of that, it was actually filmed. So that was three different forms of verification happening simultaneously. But despite this, few people seem to remember this incident today. The only echoes of it that I was aware of years later came from seeing the pilot's son mercilessly ribbed in my school class because of his father's experiences. But it's clear that there was an awful lot more to this story than the public was ever made aware of. And this was emphasised by the whitewash report prepared by the New Zealand Defence Force. Their explanations ran from uh, the lights of a nearby Japanese fishing fleet to the planet Venus, an old favourite, that one. <sighs> These explanations were embarrassingly inadequate, uh, not the least because Venus hadn't even risen at the time of this occurrence. In fact, it was almost insulting. Their crew were highly experienced and respected airmen who knew very well what Venus looked like and were also familiar with the nearby Japanese fleet. In 2010, the New Zealand Defence Force made public its own version of Project Blue Book, a compendium of UFO reports stretching back decades. From what I read, I quickly found that not only did I grow up in the region that was famous for the Kaikoura UFOs, but my hometown and surrounds seems to have always been a hotbed for unexplained aerial phenomena. Even I'd seen my own unexplained light in the sky when I was very young, but perhaps because it wasn't really regarded as anything that unusual in the place that I grew up in, my memory is just kind of faded um, into a kind of vague inconsequence with time. Looking back at the Kaikoura UFOs, the other thing that occurs to me is that it may... In fact, it was deliberately downplayed by our government. And when you consider the, t the um, age that it happened, this is not too surprising. Um, 
the Cold War was still looming very, very large in everyone's minds. And an anxious government caught short by the possibility of foreign aircraft making merry in our airspace probably unnerved a lot of uh, higher officials, quite understandably. So that's my hometown legend. Not so much a legend as a, as a widely reported event, but as I say, kind of fading into folklore nonetheless. So thank you so much, Derek, for allowing me to share this and for all the wonderful work you do with Monsters Among Us. As you already know, you have many grateful fans all across the world. So please keep up the wonderful work and may nights at the round table long continue. Thank you, Al. This is why I love Hometown Legends. I'd not heard of this video before, and who knows if I ever would have. Of course, I had to dig it up. If you want to take a look, check out the show notes, but Al pretty much nails it with his description. I've linked to the video. Check it out and let us know what you think. It certainly seems interesting to me. So thank you again, Al. For sharing your entry. Returning to the States, we head to Texas for this next entry. Now be warned, this is one of those dark and disturbing submissions I cautioned you about in the intro. That said, please welcome Chance from Texas to this special episode. Hi Derek, this is Chance back down here in Victoria, Texas. I just wanted to share a story. I've been listening to your podcast about train wrecks and all that. Well, I got something similar to that. It's been a couple years since it's happened. I remember hearing about it when I think I was in middle school or elementary. But um, on uh, U.S. Highway 77, uh, right next to the Speedy Stop, where it's, it's a little convenience store, there was a uh, tractor trailer parked right next to it. In that tractor trailer, there was maybe 20 or 30 uh, immigrants from uh, Mexico, and they were getting taken up to Houston, I guess. They were inside of the trailer, and this was during the summer, so, you know, it's very hot. It gets up into the hundreds here in Texas, but the driver, I'm guessing he abandoned the truck itself, and uh, the trailer was locked from the outside, so all those immigrants I'm sure there was, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was, you know, children and adults and young kids, but um, pretty much, you know, they all suffocated or they all died from heat stroke or something from being in, in that trailer for so long. Finally, you know, the authorities came over there, opened it up, and uh, they saw all of them dead. But uh, every now and then, if you go to that store late at night, my, my dad told me this story about how, you know, you could hear babies crying and you could hear women screaming, banging on metal. And uh, I've, I've witnessed this a couple times. I've, I've heard babies cry, but I've never actually stayed there long enough to see anything. Yeah, you know, I hope you can play this on your podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Chance. The tragedy he's referring to took the lives of 19 people on May 14th of 2003. I actually linked to an interview I found of a witness to the tragedy. If you'd like to learn more, visit the show notes or the website 
for that link. What a tragic event. I can only imagine the horror those poor people felt as they began to realize their fate. And ironically enough, I have a friend that has had a very similar experience. And the story he told me made my heart sink. The emotion I heard in his voice as he told the following story certainly puts the tragedy Chance submitted into perspective. Now before my friend became an actor, he kind of bummed around a bit. A part of that adventure was sneaking onto freighter trains. Well, on one occasion, he managed to find an open storage car and slipped inside. If my memory serves correct, he was aiming to go from L.A. to Phoenix or something similar. While he was inside, someone from the outside, presumably a railroad worker, locked the car from the outside. Peter was trapped. This was well before cell phones were widely used, so he was in a bit of a pickle, to put it mildly. He claimed the temperature outside was near 100, so the temperature inside the hot train car had to have been in the 120s or 30s. Now, according to him, the temperature continued to rise in the train car, and to make matters worse, the car he was in detached and was literally sitting, baking in the Southern California sun. Well, minutes turned into hours, and he swore he could feel death approaching. He said that he hallucinated wildly. He lost consciousness in and out. And by midday, he accepted the fact that his mistake would prove fatal. But miraculously, minutes from death, his own words, not mine, the train car suddenly swung open, a naked and nearly dead Peter spilling out onto the tracks below. The railroad worker was kind enough to share some water, and he apparently felt bad enough to not call the cops. That was the last time Peter went freight hopping. So thank you again, Chance, for reminding me of that story and for the eerily tragic entry. Guys, if you're not following Monsters Among Us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit, you are missing out. Our amazing team of volunteers have chiseled out the perfect space for fans to share stories, images, and of course, memes. Let Addie, Warren, Tony, John, Sarah, and Josh fill that MAU void during our between-season hiatus. And of course, a huge thank you to all of those amazing volunteers for their hard work and dedication. For our next hometown legend, we hop on the I-10 and follow that sucker all the way west. Daisy from California is our next tale. Hi, Derek. My name is Daisy, and I am calling from Highland, California. I have a hometown legend slash spooky story for you. I was listening to your Nights at the Round Table, The Curse of La Llorona, and I remembered a story that my grandma told me. The legend I've heard of La Llorona, the version I was taught when I was a kid, was that I guess this lady went crazy and she decided to drown her kids and then later on snapped into reality and she regretted it and she went back trying to look for them but it was too late that's what I was told when I was a child and I was also told that if I stayed up past my bedtime she would come and take me anyways the story that I know is 
that happened to my grandma, she told me a couple years ago that she heard her. And the story goes is my grandma's house is built where a creek used to run. So she added on a lot to her house. So where she would have heard her, the Yorona, it would have been outside, like on an alleyway. So my grandma said that one night, she woke up and she went downstairs to get a cup of water. And she said that, you know, it's pitch black um, and you could clearly hear everything. And she said that she was walking up the stairs and she could hear this woman calling for her kids and she couldn't believe it. And she said that as she was going up the stairs, she kept hearing it and hearing it. And when she got to the top of the stairs, she said that she felt somebody, you know, like kind of pull her back. Anyways, um, that's the story. I love your podcast. Hopefully this counts as a hometown legend slash spooky story. And keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Okay, bye-bye. If you're still playing Hometown Legends Bingo, mark your La Llorona Square now. Thank you, Daisy. We can probably add La Llorona to our list of infamous ladies in white. Although, with the murderous tendencies of Daisy's mysterious woman... Perhaps it's best to keep her in a category all her own. Either way, we appreciate and enjoy the entry. So thank you again, Daisy, for taking the time. While we're in the Golden State, Gary also has a tale to tell. So take it away, Gary. Hey, Derek. This is Gary calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm calling in with a hometown legend. So I went to school at uh, UCR, known as UC Riverside or University of California, Riverside here in California. And the story surrounds the haunted Rivera Library. So UCR was founded back in 1954, and the library was also built in the same year. It actually has been renovated three or four times since then. My experience actually happened in 2007 while I was a student there. Uh, A little bit more backstory about the library. It has actually been the site of several deaths. I think two students and a faculty member actually died in the library itself, two of which were heart attacks, and the third one was like a seizure by a student that happened somewhere on the fourth floor. So a lot of students have reported that the library is actually haunted as far as seeing things pop out, uh, books pop out when no one is there, feeling cold air when it's actually uh, warm in the library because it's cold outside. Um, In fact, a lot of students have actually reported the smell of sulfur down in the basement, and that's something that actually I can attest to. So it was the fall semester of 2007, and I was preparing for finals. Historically, the Rivera Library is open 24 hours during final season so that students can spend as much time in the library and making their final preparations for their exam. So it was about December. It was a clear night, early December of 07, and I was preparing for a political science final. I was down in the library pretty late. It was well past midnight, probably closer to one in the morning. And you can reserve specific rooms in some of the libraries. And when people leave, you can either you know, go on and take residence in them, or you can you know, wait uh, at one of the tables outside. 
So I was waiting for one of the rooms to clear, and the students who were using the room eventually left, and they put the lights on. So I was gathering my stuff to go in, and all of a sudden, the lights were on. Now, there was nobody else around. I had waited for this group of kids to leave, and when I went in, it was pretty cold in the room. Now, sure, the AC might have been on, whatever, but it was December, so most of the library was actually being heated. So it was kind of odd that the room was a little cool since there was a group of about three or four kids who were just in there. Now, started feeling that it was kind of creepy and I did know some of the backstory of the library. I didn't spend too much time in there. I was going out to grab a book and all of a sudden I started smelling something that was kind of like rotten eggs. And yes, I know that other students had reported smelling that sulfur type smell, but I can attest to smelling it myself. At this point, I just grabbed my stuff and ran back home to my apartment, which was on campus. Anyway, that is my hybrid hometown legend experience at UC Riverside. I hope you can use the call, Derek, and yeah, keep it up. The whole family loves what you're doing. All right, Derek, thanks for the podcast and hope you can use this. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Both Gary and Daisy are in my neck of the woods, so it's sort of fun to learn more about the paranormal goings-on in my area. And since Gary brought up college libraries, mine too had a very particular legend about it while I was attending. The Jerome Library at Bowling Green State University in Ohio was rumored to house the largest collection of adult entertainment on the planet. It was a long-held rumor that nearly every student in the school knew, though I've never known of any proof of this collection existing. Well, as I was writing this, I did a little research online and found out that the legend isn't too far from the truth. According to Mental Floss, the Special Collections Library at Bowling Green State University in Ohio is something of a legend among librarians. Their collections include over 10,000 comic books, and graphic novels, an array of materials related to the Miss America pageant, a Pokemon collection, Star Trek memorabilia, and a collection of vintage paperbacks. As far as I could tell, this might be the largest collection of popular culture references in one place. And if I'd known that, I might have spent a little more time in the library. Thanks again, Gary, for sharing your tale. Now, I still have a few stories to share, but I wanted to first remind you that we will be dark for the next month. To give me time to recharge, do some housekeeping, and process the backlog of new calls. Season 10, I can't believe we're on season 10 already, but season 10 will begin on September 3rd. So mark those calendars. Now, if you're one of those fiends that needs their Monsters Among Us fix, I suggest visiting Patreon. Each month, I release up to two bonus episodes, full one-hour shows that feature spooky calls exactly like what you hear on the main show. In addition, I've posted photos, videos, old student films I've created, and much, much more. There are three levels you can join. One dollar a month gives you access to the occasional episode. $4 a month gives you up to two bonus episodes 
a month. And an $8 level gives you all of that, plus new episodes each month of a segment I'm calling Nights with Edgar Allan Poe. A bit of a sleep aid recording where I read works from the legendary author. And of course, you get access to all the levels below your tier. An instant access to dozens of back episodes, depending on your pledge level. And as if you needed another reason to sign up, the next Monsters Among Us Beyond Patreon exclusive will be the second and final installment of the season's Hometown Legends. So sign up today for the $4 level or higher to catch that upcoming episode. And lastly, you can cancel at any time. And I should add a huge thank you to everyone that has already contributed. Now next up is an entry from the Lone Star State. This entry comes to us from James in the state of Texas. Hey Derek, James from Texas for the Hometown Legends. My family moved to a very, very small town in the Texas Hill Country, which is kind of right in the middle of Texas. It's one of those towns where, you know, it's full of a lot of small town rednecks, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. But, you know, it's it's one of those towns, though, that has a lot of history. It's been around for a long time. Uh, I think it dates back to the 1800s. The little town is called Lano, and that's L-L-A-N-O. And right outside of Lano is, now the town, I just let you know, the town, I mean, all along the main streets, they still have like the iron rings where people used to tie up their horses. And so, you know, it's 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 an old town. But anyway, right outside of Lano, there is a, a cemetery called Six Mile Cemetery. And Six Mile is one of those cemeteries that has been around for an extremely long time. There's gravestones there that date back to the 1800s. But the story around it is that there's this little schoolhouse on in the cemetery. This is where, because it's like I said, it's extremely rural, mostly all farmland out there. Uh, when I say farm, I mean ranch land, a lot of goat goat ranches, cattle ranches. And this little schoolhouse sat uh, right next to the cemetery. Well, the story goes that one day either the teacher went mad or a madman came in and basically slaughtered all the children, killed them and chopped them up and threw them in a well that was right nearby there. And the legend is that if you go to the cemetery, you know, the little schoolhouse is haunted. It's still there. Uh, they've kind of done some restoration on it. They used to have a chalkboard, which, you know, the old saying, you write your name on it, you you know, you whatever, whatever, you're going to die or you're going to, something's going to happen to you. Anyway, for vandalism purposes, they took that chalkboard down a while back. But it's kind of a cool place. I've been there a few times. Of course, there's nothing else to do in a podunk town in the middle of Texas. But it's very peaceful, in my opinion. The t- couple times I went there, it's kind of tucked back in a little valley. It's very it's a lot of hills all in that area and this little area is tucked into a valley. But supposedly the the cemetery's haunted. I've had some buddies that have claimed they've seen, you know, the the nine foot tall, slender I don't I, this is way before Slender Man, but they were seeing a slender spirit and claim to see ghosts and have experiences there. But every time I went and nothing ever happened, it was just a nice place to go and chill out. So but they also say that that well, which is not in the cemetery, is kind of like across the street. If you go there, you can still hear the children screaming and stuff like that coming out of the well. 
course, I've, I've never actually got to go to the whale. It's on private property now, so you don't really get to go there. But anyway, it's it's a cool legend and definitely well known in the hill country area. A lot of people used to go there and you know do their own little stakeouts or ghost hunts or whatever you want to call it. The the county ended up locking it up. Um, the one experience I did I did have, I just remember this is the only creepy thing that happened to me was uh, the first time I went. Right, you know, it's it's hot, it's Texas. You know, this was in the middle of summer, so it was kind of sultry. But right when you opened the gate to the cemetery, a cool wind would blow, and it wouldn't be blowing until you opened that gate and walked in, and then you have that cool, cool breeze. And uh, so that was the only you know weird thing that happened to me, but. Uh, but like I said, they locked it up. A lot of people used to, used to started going there, and there's some vandalism and such. So, you know, it's hard to go there now. And it's actually they've the historical society has gotten a hold of it, and so uh, they're doing a lot of restorations and such. But anyway, it's just a hometown legend. Felt like I wanted to share it with you. I appreciate everything. Talk to you soon. Thank you, James. I'll tell you what. Something James said kind of rang a bell with me. I know the cool breeze that he speaks of, and if I'm honest, it's one of my favorite things about visiting a cemetery. I'm often reminded of the cemetery adjacent to my grandparents' farm. It also had that effect every time I made a visit, which was probably an unhealthy number of times. So thank you too, James, for bringing back more fond memories. Trucking right along, we make our way back up to Appalachia, where Waguli has a tale waiting for us. Hi, Derek. It's Waguli again, calling in for the upcoming Hometown Legends episode. This will be a short story, like a lot of oral legends are. It's not anything that's documented or written down anywhere that I've ever seen, just something that was common knowledge passed on until it became a legend of sorts. This story took place in Grassy Meadows, which is an area of West Virginia down near Blue Sulphur Springs in Greenbrier County. It's not actually a town, but I reckon it counts as a hometown legend anyhow. It happened in the 1920s or 30s when my grandfather was young and living in Snake Run, which is a holler near about to Grassy Meadows. My grandfather told the tale to my mother, and she passed it on to me. There was a lot of strange things what took place down there around Snake Run in that area. Anyways, there was a house that sat not far off the main road that ran through Grassy Meadows, and there was a door-to-door salesman what come up missing from the area. He'd been seen going around to the hollers, but then he just up and disappeared. They never found him or anything that belonged to him, and the law never got any real evidence of anything bad having happened. But folks said that the woman who lived by her only in this house just off the road had killed that salesman for some reason and done away with the remains of him. She weren't ever officially investigated or anything, not that my grandfather ever heard of anyway. But everyone living around all knew she'd done away with the salesman. Later, when that woman died, folks started seeing a face in one pane of glass in one of the front windows of the house. My grandfather saw the face in the glass pane himself at least once. Many other people saw it over the following years. Most anyone who went by the place and looked would see the face. It was always in the same pane of glass. Folks said it was the face of that salesman the old woman had killed, like his soul was trapped there just looking out at a world it could never get back to. 
Nobody ever lived in that house after the old woman died, and some folks wouldn't even go by there anymore. Somebody eventually set out to put a stop to folks seeing the haint and went and replaced all the glass panes in all the windows of the house, even though nobody lived there in years. At first, it seemed to work, but then the face come back, clear as day in the same pane of glass in the same window. That face was visible for years until finally, one day, the house burnt clean to the ground. There wasn't any reason for it to happen, no storm, no lightning, and no working electricity to short out and spark. They never figured out how the house caught fire, and nobody ever admitted to doing it on purpose. To my knowledge, there's no official record of any salesman ever going missing in grassy meadows. But back then, when all this happened during the Great Depression and in the mountains of Appalachia, I reckon a lot of people disappeared. They just walked off and left and never came back. Folks moved all the time just trying to survive back then. And if there's any truth to the legend and the salesman did ever go missing or get murdered, he just was one more last soul among thousands back then. That's all I've got for this hometown legends episode. There's more stories from my grandfather that would probably fit the category, but I've got to sit with my mother and get them written down. You and your wife take care of yourselves with all that's going on, Derek. I appreciate everything y'all do, and I look forward to hearing all the other hometown legends in the upcoming season finale. You take care. Bye. Thank you, Waguli, for sharing. I hope you and yours are safe as well. I thoroughly enjoyed this story. It had so many elements worthy of a Stephen King short story. And the missing door-to-door salesman? Well, I really set the scene. So thank you again for sharing. I'm really looking forward to your other entries. And folks, just like that, we near the end of this installment of Hometown Legends. As always, I want to thank the volunteers, submitters, and especially you the listener, for yet another record-breaking season. Without all of you, I would not be able to say that the best is yet to come. So now, for that last call. This one keeps us in the East and takes us back to the state of Pennsylvania. This one was submitted anonymously. Hey, Derek, I'm calling to leave you a story that just happened to me yesterday, actually. One of my favorite parts of your podcast that you do is your hometown legends season finales, and I always wanted to do one about my town's home legend. So you can either use it for then, I guess, or you can use it now. I just figured that with what happened to me yesterday, it'd be a good time to call in and tell it while it's still fresh. So the hometown legend that I have, my wife and I live in Columbia, Pennsylvania, which is a little river town on the Susquehanna River in south-central, southeastern PA. And their little legend is of a mini Bigfoot. So there's a place that's called Chickie's Rock, and it's spelled Chick, I-E, Chickie's Rock. And at Chickie's Rock, Native Americans that lived in the area hundreds of years ago spoke about a little hairy man that was like three to four feet tall that lived in the trees and would throw crab apples and rocks and other things at people that disturbed their lands or disturbed whatever they were doing in their little communities. Then when uh, English and German immigrants moved out here, Chickie's Rock was turned into a sort of resort spot for rich people during the 17 and 1800s. And they, being ignorant to the Native American stories by and large, reported the same stories that when they would go and they would try to picnic on the overlooks that looked over the Susquehanna River, 
because there are some really beautiful uh, overlook points on the Susquehanna River that you can sit and have a little picnic at at this Chickies Rock area. Well, they reported little gorilla-like or little monkey-like or little ape-like creatures that would climb down out of the trees and throw crab apples at them and throw other things at them. So the German immigrants started calling them the Alba Twitches or the Apple Twitches. So we actually have every October, there's a Saturday that gets set aside in Columbia that's like a little street festival day that they have down in the river called uh, Alba Twitch Day or Apple Twitch Day. And it's all about Bigfoot and Sasquatch and the Apple Twitch and all kinds of different North American cryptids like that that are sort of of the Bigfoot variety. Anyway, getting back to my story, I was walking on a trail that runs a little bit down the road from where this point is. I was walking with the dog yesterday on this nice little path. And nobody was around. It was dead silent. It was kind of weird that there was nobody in front of me, behind me, anywhere, because the path is usually pretty crowded. But I started hearing this noise, and the dog heard it too, this, like, crashing sound that sounded like something like jumping through trees and snapping branches and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, it literally sounded like when you're at the zoo and you see a gorilla jumping between his enclosure or just what you picture when you think of something big and heavy kind of jumping through trees. And I stopped. Because I looked up the sort of ravine, and I was like, what on earth is that? So the dog and I got real quiet, and we're just kind of focusing our hearing, trying to figure out where that's coming from, and then it just stopped. I was like, all right, no big deal. Probably a tree just fell over or whatever. So then the dog and I start walking a little bit further, and we get right about to where I think the sound was, and I swear to God, things start flying from the trees. A little crab apple hit the path, two rocks flew from somewhere else, and all over I could hear things landing near me and the dog. And if it wasn't for the fact that the dog was just as wired in as I was trying to figure out where this was coming from and kind of seeming a little spooked, I would have just written it up to whatever. It probably was nothing in me just connecting the dots with coincidences, but I do think it's an interesting story. And maybe, just maybe, I did have a little Apple Twitch experience. But anyway, love your show. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you, caller. Yet another legend that I've not heard of and given the fact that there is a festival commemorating the creatures, makes that even more hard to believe. In my research on this story, I found a locally produced video that features a few first-hand encounters of these apple twitches. The following clip comes courtesy of Lancaster Online. It was six o'clock in the morning, uh, driving up Route 23 Marietta Pike towards Marietta, and as I'm driving up there approaching the intersection, I saw a figure walking in the middle of the road. But as I got closer, all the hair on my arms started standing up and I seen this wasn't a person. And I, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was about five foot tall, covered in black hair, but it was real skinny. This creature turned around, looked at me, our eyes met, and it was gone. All I remember seeing was the two yellow eyes and it was gone. Many people like Rick Fisher over the centuries have claimed to see a three to five foot tall humanoid creature roaming the woods near Columbia, specifically near Chickie's Rock. This creature is known as the Albatwitch. Legend says that the Susquehannocks who lived at the base of Chickie's Rock, which is, is fact, uh, supposedly had depictions of ape-like creatures on their war shields, so perhaps they had some uh, knowledge of the Albatwitches. In the 1800s, picnickers at Chickie's Rock would apparently be terrorized by these tree-dwelling albatwitch. Chickie's Rock was a happening place. Uh, it was up top there, they had trolleys to go up there, you know, people would picnic up there at a concession stand. Supposedly, the 
Albatwitches would come out of the trees and steal apples from the people who were picnicking. That's how they got their name. The name Albatwitch most likely has Pennsylvania Dutch origins, with many believing the name to be a corruption of apple snitch or apple witch. Another possibility could be from the German word alb, meaning elf, and the German verb entweichen, meaning escape. Legend says the creature went extinct in the late 1800s, but a few recent sightings have been reported around Columbia and even as far as eastern York County. Christopher Vera of the Columbia Historic Preservation Society recalls a few reports in his lifetime. A good friend of mine for years, a teenager, told us that him and his brother were playing up in the woods and they were playing hide-and-go-seek and all of a sudden got pinned to the tree. He's 10 years old. Pinned to the tree, he was face-to-face with a creature. I pinned him against a tree, he screamed from his brother, his brother comes screaming, and the creature ran away. The Columbia News, which ran six days a week back in the 1980s, I remember up at the high school, we remember the police blocking the streets to get up in the lower hill that a visitor saw a hairy creature. Uh, we scared him. So why were the police protecting that road? Why didn't they let anybody up in the lower hill gardens at that time? And if I remember, it was a week to two weeks that they wouldn't let anybody up there until they investigated this thing. This legend is so popular among locals that it even has its own festival, the annual Albatwitch Day. It's an event full of live music, paranormal lectures, art, and of course, apple-themed dishes. We also have trolley rides to take you up to Chickies and uh, tell stories about the Albatwitch and a fun ride on the trolley and then actually get up to the top of the uh, Clinesville Road and uh, commemorate the uh, Albatwitch by throwing apples off the trolley. I really love that they throw apples to pay homage to these creatures. No doubt the next day, the local wildlife have quite the buffet going. Now, as for our caller's sighting, a falling crab apple is not all that uncommon. In fact, I'd say every apple ever grown has fallen at some point. But that's not the case with rocks. And as far as I know, primates, including humans, are the only animals known to throw objects. So if it wasn't another person messing with our collar, what else could it have been? I should also point out that other regions around the world also have legends of tiny, hairy creatures said to resemble many big feet. The Duende of Latin America and the Philippines, the Orang Pendek of Indonesia, and closer to home, on July 4th, 1884, a small half-ape, half-boy was captured and put on display in the state of Montana. Dubbed Jacko, the creature was said to draw big crowds until it escaped a few days later. It was described as looking like a young gorilla, yet no identification was made. And I feel I should also point out that the story is now widely believed to be a hoax. So take that for what it's worth. So anyway, there are at least other stories persisting of these creatures. A smaller, more nimble version of the towering beast we've all grown to love and fear. Or is it possible that this region of Pennsylvania acts as some sort of nursery, where expecting Sasquatch venture from hundreds of miles away to give birth to their infants? Of course, that is simply my wild speculation. But whatever these things are, I'm incredibly thankful that our caller took the time to share them with us tonight. So thank you again, good sir, for the call. 
And that's going to do it for this special episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd and Sarah Carter Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And that terrifying score you hear, well, that's co.ag music. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for an amazing season. And until next time. Tonight's bonus entry takes us to the bluegrass state of Kentucky. The following story was submitted by Lex. This is Lex from Kentucky calling for us a hometown legend. So in Elizabethtown, there is the cemetery called the Gates of Hell, and it's supposedly haunted. It's supposedly a very creepy cemetery. It's really old. It's probably from the 1800s. And there's supposedly a witch's tree or a witch's grave where if you go to a mangled tree, you will see a grave. And apparently it's a witch's grave. Also, here's a little short story. Around it, around 2014, I was in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and I saw the shadow figure walking up my neighbor's sidewalk. And that's about it. I'm glad I can do this on your podcast, and goodbye. Thanks, Lex. I've actually been to Elizabethtown, albeit it was probably 30 years ago. My uncle actually lived there for a decade or so. But, like so many other states in that region, Kentucky is chock full of legends from the Poplick Monster to the Hopkinsville Goblins. The paranormal runs deep in the Bluegrass State. And I can rest easy tonight knowing that Elizabethtown has also contributed to that rich and vast supernatural history. So thank you again, Lex, for sharing the call. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. You have a great night.